night's primaries spanned the country and the political spectrum. Nowhere felt the so-called pink wave more than Pennsylvania, which currently has no women in Congress. Summer Lee's a lawyer and labor organizer, Elizabeth Fiedler, former public radio reporter. Uh, Sarah Inamorato is the founder of Women's Advocacy Group, and Kristen Seal works in an energy conservation nonprofit. All four female candidates unseated male state representatives in Tuesday's primaries. The significance of this. This is a, a huge wake-up call for the, for the Democratic establishment. We have sent a loud and clear message to people about what is possible, about the kind of campaign that is possible, right? You don't yes. have to be yes. super rich. You don't have to be a political insider. You can be so many different things as long as you are committed to representing your community and, again, doing that hard work. So much hard Sea change or trickle? Was last month's Democratic primary in Philadelphia a sign that the city's rickety old Democratic machine is ready to tumble into the sea, like that Jersey Shore roller coaster during Superstorm Sandy? Or are reports of the old guard's demise premature, another sign of millennial hype, of reformist hopes blinding people to stubborn facts? I'm Chris Citullo, and this is 20 by 70, the Committee of 70's podcast for people who expect more from Philadelphia. In a way, it all depends on how you squint. Scrunch your eyes one way, and what you see is a story of increased turnout by millennial progressives and immigrant communities sweeping newbies such as Elizabeth Fiedler of South Philly past party and union-backed candidates. You see new faces in line to take over legislative seats that haven't changed hands in decades. You see passionate young Philadelphians running for Democratic committee seats, trying to reform and rebuild the dominant party from within. Scrunch the other way, though, and you see these things. Millennial turnout still under 10%. Two old guard congressmen from Philly winning with only token opposition. That party committee insurgency falling well short of a revolution. Bob Brady, the very emblem of the old ways, is still the Democratic Party chair in Philadelphia, for crying out loud. So which is it, shiny new day or same old, same old? Well, we're not sure we can settle that question in the next 20 minutes or so, but we sure can explore it. We're delighted to do that with two guests who are on the front lines of the fight. Allie Perlman of Philadelphia 3.0, a political reform organization, and Andy Toy, Development and Communications Director for CMAC, one of the city's leading immigrant services organizations. First, let's bring in 70s CEO David Thornburg to chat with Allie Perlman of Philadelphia 3.0. Welcome, Allie. Thank you, David. So I know you all at 3.0 were heavily involved in encouraging um, greater participation uh, for people running for uh, committee seats uh, in the ward organization in the city. I want you to talk about that in a minute, but first of all, let's just to sort of set the table uh, for the uninitiated. What, what exactly is the ward and committee structure here in Philadelphia? So the two major political parties, Republican and Democrat, use the way that the city is organized to administer elections. That is the system that identifies where you should vote based on where you live for political purposes. And so 
The city of Philadelphia, which is also the county, is broken down into 66 units, 66 wards. They're all different sizes. They have all different kinds of numbers of people in them. And then those wards are further broken down into divisions. There are typically around 25 divisions per ward. Some wards have as few as 15. Some wards have as many as like 55. In each of these divisions, each party can have two committee people, which is to say two people elected by the party voters in that division. There are about 500 of those voters per division. And those people are basically political block captains. They represent the voters of their party to the city party. And they are also the people who are tasked with the most sort of grassroots of political work. They do voter registration. They do get out the vote drives. And um, by and large, these folks, in, and in aggregate, there are over 3,300 of them in each party. They are the grassroots of the two parties in Philadelphia. Um, for folks that are newly arrived on the scene, uh, what we call divisions in other cities, they call precincts. Correct. Yeah. And and this whole ward and committee— Because everything in Philly has to be idiosyncratic. That, that's right. <laughs> There's a secret code that you have to uh, yeah. buy into. Um, and, and this ward and committee structure has been around as long as anyone can remember. And there are wards. So there are, in the way that there are precincts everywhere, there are committee people everywhere because there are county parties in every county in the country, uh, just as there are state parties in every state in the country. And there are plenty of places where um, the party infrastructure, the committee people, and the county party chair um, play a pretty sort of like, I don't know, organizational and logistical role, kind of technical. But in Philly, that's not at all the case. Because again, everything here has to be so uniquely Philadelphia, even though the system that we're talking about here, just like the way that it's organized looks exactly like how it's organized everywhere else. The way that it gets mobilized here looks different than everywhere else at present. There were yeah. plenty of places in the 1950s when they still had really robust party machines that looked like the way that ours do now. Right. By and large, in other cities, those machines have gone by the wayside. We just haven't. Yeah. And, and this is really, uh, I mean, to sort of summarize, this is the architecture or the framework of the so-called political machine. Yes. Um, maybe not nearly as robust as it was back in the 50s and 60s, but there it is. And... Philly 3.0, uh, and we'll talk about this in a second, clearly wanted to try to reinvigorate and mm -hmm. even reinvent this whole warden committee structure. Yep. So, Be because you think it's worth doing. Oh, it's absolutely worth doing. And, you know, there. just to take a step back, the only reason why it wouldn't be worth doing is if you thought um, any candidate getting elected citywide at this point, or even not, even in a, di a district in the city, that any candidate has enough of an opportunity to reach directly to voters, him or herself, through his or her own messaging, mail, TV, knocking on doors, what have you. Digital. Digital. Um, that's just not the case. There are plenty of people who run for low-level down-ballot offices who just do not have the resources to communicate their message to all the voters they need to win. And what ends up happening in those situations is that the party system, this infrastructure we're talking about, that fills the vacuum. And so it plays its most sort of uh, important or acute role in those lower information races. Most people know who they're going to vote for for mayor. They've had like at least a few months to get to know the candidates. They can make a choice. Yeah. 
very few people know when they're standing in a poll in front of 40 names for common pleas judge, which seven they're going to vote for. And that's where the party comes in. Yeah. So we set we set up your recent activity, but talk about what you tried to do in this the last uh, last election cycle, why it was important, how yep. it turned out. So we are committed to the idea that the actual system that we're talking about, the committee people on the ground, the ward leaders who the, who they elect, and then the committee chair, that institutionally, like the bones of that system are perfect. They're perfectly designed for grassroots politics. And they're also just incidentally not, this is not going anywhere. And so the idea is the system structure is great. It's also just not going to disappear overnight. Yeah. And so what does that mean in terms of what our, our obligation is as an organization that's committed to improving politics in Philadelphia? And what that means is we need to get some new people into these committee people seats, essentially to seed the party with people who want the party to function different and better. And from our perspective, that means getting people in who are committed not only to just doing a better job with like the day-to-day committee personing, but also advocating for a better functioning ward system at their specific ward level and then also ward-wide. And by that, you mean what? Better functioning. So it can be better functioning can be defined in a couple of different ways. Some wards just don't do anything. Period. Like literally nothing. Literally nothing. I'm in the second ward. I just wrapped up my first term as a committee person. We never met. Like we had no meetings mm-hmm. in four years. <clears throat> People are busy, I guess. <laughs> People are too, too busy to meet over the course of four years. Um, so better functioning means building out what I think most people would just view as like pretty standard like operating procedures for any kind of organization, an organization that meets regularly, that communicates uh, frequently with its members, uh, an organization that's accessible by people both within the organization and outside the organization. That stuff is all sort of like, I don't know, cut and dried administrative. But then there's other stuff that the wards really either are should be doing and aren't um, or are breaking the law by not doing. Who sets the rules for these things, by the way? The county party. And it's interesting because the county party writes its own bylaws, and those bylaws are applicable to the wards themselves. Could, could one read those if one went to the <laughs> county party website? <laughs> one could. It's um, an interesting site to navigate, but you will be able to find a scanned PDF, not searchable, of the 214, uh, 2014 revised uh, Democratic City Committee bylaws. Okay. Um, and I mean, they really, it's, it's only like a 30 page read. I actually would recommend it. It's just sort of like as an anachronism, it's like kind of interesting. Written on cuneiform tablets That's right. or yeah. something. Yeah. With no shortage of typos. So, um, but there are other things in addition to just like, just frankly having meetings that these wards ought to be doing. Um, they're legally required, for example, to file all campaign finance reports because a ward has a PAC. The PAC is the entity through which candidates contribute money, and the ward then spends that money to help support those candidates. Most wards do not follow this law. Percentage, maybe? What? How many uh, abide by that rule? A half? A third? Well, a quarter? If, you, if, you're gonna, if we're going to set the standard as the ward files every time it's supposed to, not just whenever it feels like it, I don't know, 15% of the wards maybe. Yikes. 
Yeah. So there's a lot of work to do to reform, open up, make more transparent these. There's no transparency built in. And PS, that's a feature, not a bug, right? I mean, the purpose of the system for so long was to um, sort of calcify the distinction between people who were sort of like in the party and people who are outside the party. Yeah. It was, it's frequently up until this point, sort of like a totally obscured system in terms of how you actually run for one of these committee people seats, what you do once you're elected committee person, what the ward leader's power actually is, that kind of stuff. Like you can't, you, 3.0 and 70 have been doing work on this, sort of like trying to shine a light on this stuff. And, and frankly, but for the work that organizations have been doing over the last I don't know, let's call it like seven years, most people just wouldn't know. The average voter wouldn't know that he or she had a committee person. Yeah. And the per- the voter wouldn't know how to reach that person, again, by design. Um, and they wouldn't really know or understand what the levers of influence were that that committee person was able to exert. So I think you've just sort of articulated the agenda that maybe you were re- trying to recruit uh, committee people around. Mm-hmm. Um, so how'd that turn out? How'd the recruitment efforts go? What was the sort of one lost uh, record at, yep. at the uh, division level? Yeah. So it's actually, you know, it's interesting when we uh, when we were starting when we were starting this project, even just sort of like germinating the idea. Is this was before the November presidential election, and our supposition was these elections are in May of 2018. We'll probably get this thing going, I don't know, at the end of the summer or the early fall of 2017. The reality is the day or two after the presidential election, so many people were reaching out saying, I want to get involved. In fact, I feel like I need to get involved. What is it that I should be doing now? Yeah. And we're like, oh, we're just going to have to do this thing like a year and a half earlier than we were expecting. Because the, the like affirmative right answer is you need to run for the committee person. The Democratic hornet's nest was kicked. Yeah. And these are four-year terms, by the way. These so are four-year terms. So if you terms. don't hit this cycle and do something, yeah. then you got to wait for four you missed years. missed the boat. Yeah. So there was a tremendous level of energy even in you know 2016 – and what we were able to do over the you know subsequent year and a half was build off of that energy, uh, recruit uh, 250 people to get on the ballot running for a committee person. That's out of about there about 16, 1,700 seats. There's there are 1,600 plus divisions, and so about 3,300 oh, because right, right. each division has two. So a little more than 10 percent. Yep. You recruited. Yep. And um, a little less than 10 percent. Yep. And then the um, and it was also just sort of from where we were sitting, our role was not just getting people that we were in direct contact with on the ballot, but really elevating and surfacing this idea of running for committee person as something that you can do and you can win. Um, And so in addition to being really excited about getting those 250 people on the ballot, we were also really excited when the sort of slate of balloted candidates was released to see that a full half of the people running for a committee person this year were challengers, were new people running. From where we sit, that's like a, sort of like an extraordinary level of turnover. And Even though I should point out, I don't think the, the, the number of people running for committee person it held, was, it almost was exactly steady. than it yep. was four years ago. Yep. And I just you, that sort of makes you wonder whether there's like kind of surface tension at the top there in terms of how many total people are ever going to run. Um, but half of them were new. And of those new people, 250 of them were people that we'd identified. So 
Uh, we supported those 250 people, walked them sort of through a campaign in a box kind of process where they were organized with other new candidates at their ward or regional level, and 170 of them won. We had a just over a 70% win rate. Okay. And, and how many votes do you need to win typically uh, a committee seat? This year, because there were so many competitive races, that number was significantly higher than what we've seen in the past. Historically, historically number one, most of the time, there are only two people on the ballot for a committee person. A typical committee person race is not a competitive race because there are two people on for two slots. This time around, though, because there were, in many cases, three, four, five, and six people on the ballot, what we were seeing is that winning candidates, and these were candidates who had spent months knocking on doors and talking to their neighbors, they won in fairly close races with about 115 votes, hmm. where four years ago they would have won comfortably with 35 to 55 votes. Hmm. So uh, 170 plus out of your 250 sort of supported candidates mm-hmm. won. About half of the new uh, the, the overall uh, candidates were new. So yep. yep. Seems like a promising step forward. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the agenda going forward uh, in, in your playbook. And, you know, we've shared a lot of thoughts on these. What, what needs to change uh, around the way we elect committee people and, and, and towards this sense of a more open, transparent, high-functioning yep. ward system? I mean, this what, what needs to happen? Yeah, it's not rocket science. And it might, the, the ideas that people have that we're advocating for are controversial only because they – Number one, aren't the way that we do things in Philly, and Philly is a city that really sort of digs deep into like the this is how we do thing, ex, ex, things explanation. Um, but it's really in the same way that what we are, um, what the people that we've supported for a committee people are advocating for at the ward level, what we're looking to change at the, the county level, at the, the county party level, is pretty basic stuff. Um, one of the sort of at the top of our list, one of sort of like the most, we think, transformative things that can happen is for the committee people themselves to vote directly on all party endorsements. So I, I saw, uh, I think this is part of what I, I saw in your colleague John Geeting's piece in the Philadelphia Citizen about some of the lessons from Allegheny County mm-hmm. across the state, Yep, the sort of more direct engagement of committee people in making those kinds of Absolutely. I mean, the committee people are elected by their neighbors. Ward leaders are elected by committee people. It's an indirect election. And who elects the chairman, by the way? Who elects Bob Brady? Uh, Last week, all of the ward leaders squished into a room that by design was made too small to fit all of them in there. And they reelected Bob Brady enthusiastically. Um, So, you know, there are there are really strong arguments in the favor of like, you know, pretty basic participatory democracy um, in favor of the kind of sort of direct election that we're talking about, which would mean when the party is deciding who to endorse for mayor, so when the county decides which of the mayoral candidates it's going to support, leave that decision in the hand of the directly elected committee people and not the indirectly elected ward leaders. Mm. Um, Leave the decision about who ought to be the the party chair in the hands of the committee people and not the ward leaders. Kind of. Direct, more direct democracy, or as yeah. you said, more participatory democracy. Yeah. So Ed Rendell's thrown around this idea that maybe it's time for local political conventions. 
Yeah. You get all the committee people together in kind of a classic, you know, uh, uh, civic space. Turn off the air conditioning to heighten the drama. <laughs> let the cigars Cigar. go. Right? <laughs> Does that sound like a good idea? Do you think that would be helpful in sort of enlivening this whole process? Oh, my God. Absolutely. I mean, this is the thing. It'll be fun. It'll be so fun. It's not going to happen at any point in the near future. But I love the idea of thinking as aspirationally as possible about this because that's all we've – the system is just – there's so much scar tissue built into the system. And as a result of that scar tissue and as a result of the fact that people feel – um, like it's by design an exclusionary system, which it is or historically has been, there really isn't a sense that even like a pretty informed, involved neighborhood person can accomplish anything by running for a committee person. That's a problem. If like a really engaged neighbor who wants to do more and wants to be more politically active feels like there isn't a role for me in the party. Yeah. And one of the changes that we saw this year is that people, in fact, did see roles for themselves because we and a few, other, a few other groups were articulating what those roles could be. But you get to take it sort of even one fairly dramatic step further if you say not only is your role to be a part of the system, your role is going to be a part of the system that now empowers you with a vote, a really meaningful vote in determining sort of who this party system is going to support. Right. And as I mentioned before, it's probably not going to make a ton of difference in a mayoral race, for example. But to have the endorsement proceedings for these lower level offices opened up to the full committee person vote would be, I mean, can you imagine like how just from like a political entertainment perspective, it would just be so <laughs> raucous. And like people, it would provide sort of like a lens or a point of entry into even just like for the media to cover these races where there typically really isn't any there there from a narrative perspective. And I think even just that in terms of raising the profile and awareness around these races could, I mean, I think it would just be hugely exciting. Yeah. One other thing we talked about earlier, which has bubbled up, uh, as I said earlier, these are four-year terms. Mm -hmm. Both For both parties, they used to be two-year terms, maybe changed in the early 90s or no one's quite sure. Yep. and there's kind of an ambient proposal around that says, let's make these two-year terms again, yep. revert to back what they were as a way of encouraging maybe more competition and turnover. Good idea, bad idea? Oh, it's a great idea. And the, you know, the, the biggest advantage, if you're coming at this from the perspective that we are, which is we need to ch- change a lot about the way this thing works, the biggest advantage, of course, of having two-year terms is that you can really start to build momentum. What we've seen historically is when there have been efforts by sort of challenger committee people to run, to try to replace the leadership in their ward, if they've come really, really close but just missed it, it's been like a pretty disheartening loss. And subsequent years they've had a really – because you have to wait for four years. Yeah. You lose all of the momentum. People have kids. They Their jobs change. Like their lives are re- – potentially really different four years down the road. And so you have to start from scratch again. And that feels like a really heavy lift. Two years, though, is not – two years is manageable. Two years you can can keep meeting for two years. And you're only really sort of not putzing around, but you're not really – 
you're only sort of like plotting and planning for a year and a half of it. And then you're already back in the election cycle. Well, it's occurred to me that if you hit the cycle wrong, if you're a newly energized citizen, you want to contemplate running for a committee slot. Mm -hmm. If you hit the cycle wrong, it could be like you could be looking at an eight year. You, you wait for four years and then even if you win for another four years, so you're looking at basically like an eight-year period, yeah, uh, which is a long time uh, in the life of or you, more or mobile you, people. Or you lose, right? Yeah. You decide. Then you lose and you think, oh, yeah, so, geez, I'll it, do something else. Someone who's hearing this podcast now who's like, shoot, this is like, I would have loved to do this. This person is going to have to wait four years. And I would say the caveat to that is it's worth checking to see if – uh, there are any vacancies in your division. You can check that information by going onto the commissioner's website, Philadelphia Votes, and uh, downloading the uh, Excel file that has all of the winners in each division. If you do not have two winners in your party, there is a vacancy, or at least conceivably there could be. Mm -hmm. And you can reach out to your ward leader, who you might find contact information for at phillywardleaders.com, and say, hey, I have an interest in this vacancy. There are only, there are more than a handful of vacancies, but they're really located in very specific geographies. So if you don't live in one of those parts of town, if you're hearing this now and you're interested, you have to wait four years, which is a huge bummer. And it just doesn't, these are really local races. You don't need, this isn't like an executive position where you yeah. like need to give someone four years to like really a, drive on an agenda. <laughs> this is like you want people who are active and energized and Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. Uh Ali, it's a, an ambitious and important agenda and we Nathan. share a lot of it and best of luck to you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. This 20 by 70 podcast was done in partnership with Young Involved Philadelphia, a great group that helps younger Philadelphians stay informed, engaged, and active in the civic and political life of their city. To see what YIP is up to and what their next event will be, go to their website, Young Involved Phila, that's Young Involved, P-H-I-L-A, dot org. And we're back with 20 by 70, the scrappy little podcast from the Committee of 70. And continuing with our theme of winds of change in Philadelphia politics, we now welcome to the studio at WXBN, Andy Toy. Andy is uh, Director of Development and Communications for CMAC, one of the leading uh, immigrant services organizations in Philadelphia. And in another part of his life, um, he's been involved in Philadelphia politics, twice ran for city council at large. And he is the founder of a group called United Voices, which seeks to get communities of color to the polls more often. So, Andy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start here with this question. Andy Toy, have you ever been a UFO? <laughs> yes, I have. Yes, I was. Or yes, I am. Yes, we can. Um, UFO was actually a group that uh, was started by a, a group of people, uh, which we coined because it was united for Obama back uh, in the first election. Um, and it was the group of people basically uh, not in the mainstream of the, of the parties uh, in Philadelphia, the African-American or the white um, voters. It, would, it included Latino, Asian, uh, African, Caribbean, Arab, American, 
Muslim, anybody that wasn't part of the mainstream, and we were trying to build a coalition to have a voice in the election. But the irony there is intentional with the phrase UFO. You're sort of phenomenon in the sky. You can be seen, but nobody knows quite what to make of you. Right. Uh, we thought it was pretty uh, apropos and uh, UFO being, um, what are those people? Right. <laughs> so that was us. So United Voices, tell us a little bit about why you founded it, what work you've been doing. Sure. Um, later on, um, using that same idea, we started a group called United Voices for Philadelphia, so it's strictly within the city at this point. And it's, it's a group of the same uh, coalition um, trying to really create a voice for those who maybe 5%, 7%, 10%, 15% of the population that really get left out uh, oftentimes in the mainstream conversation. So the Latino voices, um, which are more than 15% of our city, Asian voices, which are more than 7% of our city, um, Arab Americans who you know have uh, experienced discrimination, uh, Africans who are very different from African Americans. So a lot of the new newer immigrant organ, uh, groups out there. So uh, Andy, earlier in the, this episode of the podcast, we heard from Ellie Perlman of Philadelphia 3.0, uh, and that group uh, is emblematic of one conversation that happens about how Philadelphia policy is going to change. The millennials have been moving in, transforming certain neighborhoods. Certainly, you know, the belief is they're going to become this political powerhouse. But that conversation is actually a little younger than the conversation um, of people looking to see how the makeup of Philadelphia has been changing over the last 20 years as it moved to become a majority-minority city. And though, you know, the African-American population has been here for a long time, the group, you're, the groups you're talking about, Native African um, immigrants, Asian Americans, Hispanics, and, and, and others is now a fairly large part of the population of the city, right? Yeah, we, we, my estimate is it's over a quarter, maybe 30% of the city is con- considered non-traditional uh, white or African American. Um, the, the issue, and we'll probably get into this, is that of those the voting population and those eligible to vote is is smaller than that percentage-wise. And then we have added uh, challenges because a lot of them are, a lot of people are immigrants. By the way, the Pew report that just came out uh, showed that Philadelphia is finally back in, in um, on average, it beats out the United States now for the first time in many years as far as percentage of immigrant population. I think it's like 13%. It's, it's, it's a significant number of Immigrants. And that, of course, doesn't include Puerto Ricans who are not considered immigrants. But when it comes to city politics, running for mayor, running for council, running for row offices, um, this immigrant citizen class is still punching somewhat below its weight, right? The turnout is not what you'd hope it would be. Yeah, I would say so. Um, in fact, on my nonprofit uh, side of what I do um, at CMAC, civic engagement is, is a really important part of uh, our work. We want people to have a voice. We want people to feel that they are part of this city, that they're empowered, um, and then they'll be active participants in, in the conversation. Um, we found that um, of all voters nationwide and in Philadelphia in particular, um, Asian Americans and Latinos are at the bottom in terms of percentages of uh, registrations of eligible voters and voter turnout. And we've got to do something, and we're working to, to change that, whether it's, it doesn't matter whether they're Republicans, Democrats, independents, we, 
uh, on the nonprofit side, we believe that um, having a voice is so important um, to being part of um, a a full citizen in this country. So to fix a problem, you have to understand it. Um, What gets in the way of um, these American citizens exercising their franchise? Sure. Um, I think uh, poverty is one, but um, language is definitely an issue for newer immigrants. Um, Feeling that the system and uh, Philly 3.0 is a good example of like trying to um, understand that you have a voice and and rally people around that, um, that uh, there is no outlet for their voice um, generally. And that's what we're trying to have is a place where people can express themselves and really understand that their vote is, and I say this all the time, your vote, you have one vote, Somebody who's a billionaire or a millionaire uh, in the White House has one vote. We all we all have the same power at the at the polls, and it's important to exercise that power. And when people say it makes no difference, we look at what's going on today on the border, and it makes a difference. It makes a huge difference, and and that's what we have to convince people of that 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 they that their voice has that their vote has power, and their voice has power. So on this podcast, uh, we have been known to offer some, how should I put it, helpful criticism to the City Board of Commissioners, (laughs) which runs um, elections in this city. From your perspective, the perspective of United Voices, um, how good a job do the commissioners do helping people surmount those language barriers that you – or other barriers to voting? Well, they could definitely do more. I mean, it's not the commissioners themselves. It's really the staff because – we could we could do it with, in my opinion, there are ways to. It's the staff that counts, not not the commissioners themselves who get paid a lot of money to, to. Go to Egypt. I'm not sure. Travel to Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them don't show up for work actually. So, um, in terms of uh, voter protection, that's another issue. So there's language issues and there's knowledge at the polls, of of the people that work at the polls. Sometimes they don't know what the rules are. So they'll stop people from voting because, oh, well, you know what? You want to bring your uh, this other person in to help you because you can't read English. That's that's acceptable. But um, they may try to stop people um, who they see as foreign or different. Um, I shouldn't say it that way, but it's it's uh, if they recognize a person, you know, a lot of the people that work at the polls have been there doing that for a long time. It, part of it's an education of of them. <laughs> right. Well, you have you have neighborhoods um, in Philadelphia that, you know, this is axiomatic, undergo change, immigrant communities cluster there, and the poll workers, particularly if those people haven't been showing up for a while, when they do show up, they're like, right, right, who are you? Yeah. And there, there are underlying tensions in some of those neighborhoods. That, sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's it, uh, it probably addressed before, but the old guard has a network and they're comfortable with the people that have been coming out to vote for years and years, and 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 they have their uh, people that they know. Um, when new people move into the neighborhood, they don't know them. They 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 probably think, well, who is this person, you know, and why should they have uh, a vote? We don't know if they're a citizen or not. Sometimes, you know. So there's some probably people with some uh, biases out there too. So there's a national rhetorical backdrop here too, because there's been a lot of questioning of the Americanness of. Um, people are immigrant citizens, right? And, and the, which is totally insane because uh, everybody in this country, except for uh, the, the Native Americans, we all know that, and and African Americans who came 
not of their own free will as an immigrant. So it's, it's like we're all part of that mix. Right. Um, it's just that some of us have been here a little longer than others, and some of us are whiter than others, and that's another issue. Yeah. Uh, so five or so weeks ago, we had a primary in Philadelphia. You had a chance to analyze the turnout and see how the constituencies you're working with, the United Voices, um, did. Uh, we haven't gotten any data on that yet. Um, it takes a little while to get feedback on. Um, so on the num- on our at CMAC, we work with um, uh, PA Voices, um, which is a state non- nonpartisan organization. We're waiting to see what the data is on um, turnout. What we know from past history is that those people that we actually um, connected to and we talked to and said, hey, you know, there's an election uh, this week or tomorrow um, and we got you to register. Please come out and vote. You know, you, you need to be educated about who's, who you're voting for and what you're voting for. But please come out and vote. And it's an important right as a citizen. And it's actually, in my opinion, an obligation. Um, they come out in better percentages than um, all other groups because we've done that our homework and really um, convinced them as to why it's important. So uh, the whole issue of, of getting turnout from these communities is is more has been more than an idle um, interest of yours in that you ran for city council twice at large, mm-hmm. um, got a lot of attention in both your campaigns, um, were endorsed by the Enquirer. Some people thought you were going to win. <laughs> uh, and it was close. I mean, both times were close, but no cigar, you finished, what, eighth and seventh? Is that right? Seventh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what were your experiences there? I mean, in... You know, everybody's an individual running, but in some ways you were a symbol of the new Philadelphia trying to get on city council mm-hmm. when you ran. What message did you try and how do you think it fell short well, in terms of turning people out, not right. in terms of substance? Um, substance is, is, is what I'm about more so, <laughs> but that's not really uh, a lot of people. Um, name recognition is always important. Um, and um, people's sense of who you are is important. So, you know, in order to win in this city, you have to have a coalition, obviously, um, at 7% of the voting population if you just depended on the Asian American vote, which is probably about half of that, really, for the eligible voters. Um, and then the smaller percentage come out. It's not, it's not a great uh, – it's not going to get you anywhere. So you really have to build a coalition. Um, and um, we have two Asian American um, um, sitting council people, uh, David O and Helen Gim, so they really uh, understand that it's not just about one group. It's about um, seeing the bigger picture. Um, a lot of it's just getting out and really um, seeing and and meeting with people and hearing what they have to say because people want to be heard. Um, and if they, I think, if people feel like they're being heard, they're going to participate. And they'll probably vote for you if, you if they believe you're listening to them. Right. So we have the general election coming up in the fall, which both locally and nationally is seen as a high-stakes election. Understanding that your work is nonpartisan, you're not trying to turn out for any particular candidate or party. But given the stakes, um, particularly for immigrant communities and communities <coughs> of color in this election, What's the messaging you're going to be using, and what what techniques are you going to use to try to make sure people who are eligible to vote come out to vote? Well, we've in the past we've had these forums, and we've had a really great one for the judicial candidates a few years ago, and you know, and we heard from them, and and they heard from the community, and they saw the communities that that are at the table, 
Um, and I think it gives them a greater pr- appreciation that there is a, a group of people that sometimes are in the, um, invisible. Um, but we just did a forum uh, for the um, for the congressional candidates in Philadelphia, the three congressional, uh, the second, third, and fifth, I believe it was. Um, oh, those new numbers. It's driving me <laughs> yeah, crazy. Not the seventh or the first. <laughs> yeah. or, but, um, and most of the candidates showed up, um, and we asked them. Specific- and that's a lot of candidates. Well, mo- yeah, yeah, I think we had uh, – nine or ten candidates out of at that point it was like about 15 left mm-hmm. um and initially it started about 15 in the fifth um it got whittled down but um interestingly you know we asked them specific questions about um you know ice and 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 immigration Im- a lot of immigrant type issues but also you know things that that affect us all like um assault wa- uh, assault weapons ban um simple stuff that everybody should be on in line with. And and for the most part, they were all in line with the questions that we asked. I, I have to say that um, we invited everyone and uh, we didn't get, we got a couple responses from the Republican candidates initially and then zero came. So it tells me that, you know, there, maybe there is either, either for whatever reasons um, they didn't show up, but I think part of it is because of the fear of, um, these issues that are being imposed on us by um, an awful president um, that that are um, affecting their party, so they they they're they don't know where they they to, to come down on some of that stuff. I I think that's part of it. Uh, but by asking these questions and by being present, I think we're 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 adding another voice to the to the picture, and we're allowing um, people that come to these forums and beyond, because it was live streaming, that they can find out more about who's running. They can see them. They can hear them. um, They can meet them in person. So I think that that um, more personal um, uh, connection is really important for people to want to um, participate. And then on election day, do you have any kind of get-out-the-vote operation, or do you have things that you do? Um, so yeah, we do. I mean, as a, as a nonprofit, so right. putting them back Understood. on the nonprofits yeah. hat. The week be, leading up to the election, we do we do a lot of phone banking, and in fact, we've done, uh, this last election um, we did it in collaboration with a number of other groups. So we had a giant phone bank with like thirty people making phone calls, telling people, uh, reminding them that. Uh, within the next couple days, the election is coming and they should get out to vote and make sure that they um, continue that process. And the people that we're targeting actually are those that are infrequent voters but vote every now and then because there are people that actually vote like in the presidential election and fail to vote for four years. Um, but it's important to keep that um, practice up. And, and, and once people get into the habit, um, we're not targeting people that vote every year. It's just in every primary and every uh, general election. So we're we're trying to build um, a bigger base of people, and in particular Asian Americans. Andy, I don't know how comfortable you are getting into the prediction uh, racket, but um, how long do you think it'll be? How long a path is it until um, these uh, immigrant communities we've been discussing vote in a, at a level commensurate? to their actual share of the Philadelphia population, that their clout matches their presence? 
I think that's hard to predict. I think sometimes it takes um, things to happen that impact people. Um, an example, and, you know, in Philadelphia is um, some of the, the rules on takeout restaurants that are particularly aimed, and we know that, right. that, that you know, a lot of them are Asian-American-owned. Uh, um, and uh, so when people feel the, the, the um, heat of, immig- of, of um, bias and, and discrimination, whether it's intentional or not, because I think a lot of times it's not intentional, but sometimes it is, uh, you know, just like in the African-American community, you know, when people were not given the right to vote and were, were held out of the polling places with poll taxes and BS kind of stuff, uh, you know, literacy tests, that's when um, people became more, um, uh, even more um, enthusiastic about making sure they, they and their fellow um, citizens got out to vote. So, Andy Toy, uh, thanks yeah. very much for joining us here at the WXBN studio today. Thank you. Thanks for the time. Well, that's it. Another episode of 20 by 70 straight from our fevered brains into your earbuds. We hope you enjoyed it. In ending, we have a few people to thank. First of all, of course, our guests, Ellie Perlman of Philadelphia 3.0 and Andy Toy of United Voices. Thanks also to WXBN Public Radio, which has provided us a home while our regular home at the Kelly Writers House on the Penn Campus is being renovated. Particular thanks to Mike Vasilikos, who's been just great in helping us get set up here. Thanks, as always, to our intrepid producer, Joel Patterson, and to Philadelphia's Civic Yoda, the CEO and president of the Committee of 70, David Thorberg. I'm Chris Satulo, and as always, our final bit of advice to you is, expect more Philadelphia.